Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, this is what God's word says. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, at this time we desire that we would not hear the voice of a mere man preaching, but that we would hear the voice of your very Spirit who inspired these words. That we would hear the preaching of Jesus Christ himself by his Spirit speaking to us. We ask that you would help us, enable us to receive it as such. And help us to be conformed to the truth that is here written in your holy word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to verse 51, which we already looked at last week. But we need to revisit this verse because this verse marks a pivotal transition in Luke's narrative of the gospel. Because starting in verse 51, we begin a new major section that takes us all the way through chapter 19. Now, what is this new major section? Well, it's Jesus being locked into his final destination, Jerusalem, and making his journey there. Notice in verse 51, it says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And again, emphatically repeated in verse 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. The appointed time had come near for Jesus to fulfill all that he had come to do, to suffer the agony of the cross, to subject himself to death, and to be raised and ascended back to the Father, all in Jerusalem. And Jesus knew this. He was aware that it was only a matter of months until the dreadful destiny would become reality for him. And so at this point, at this crossroads, if you will, Jesus resolved to go willingly to the cross. And so from verse 51 of chapter 9 all the way to chapter 19, verse 44, Jesus is making a beeline for Jerusalem where the cross awaited him. Now, that's not necessarily in terms of a strict travel itinerary and that he was not allowed to make any stops or talk to anyone. No, we'll, we'll actually see Jesus making trips to other villages and making certain detours along the way. But the sense of this verse is that Jesus was making a mental beeline, fully made up his mind, and Jerusalem was now on the forefront of his mind and heart. Every step of the way, 
until he would step foot into the temple in Jerusalem in chapter 19, verse 45. And from there would be his final few days of his Passion Week leading up to the cross. And the shifting of gears in verse 51 of chapter 9 is important for a couple reasons. First, that we see our Lord's relentless determination, which reminds us of his great willingness to save sinners. You know, the suffering that Jesus endured didn't just happen to him incidentally, but Jesus actively embraced it. He willingly took the place of sinners, voluntarily put himself under the weight of our sin and its punishment. And so this reassures us. And even to those of you here today who do not know Christ, who have not trusted in him, that Jesus will never refuse any sinner who comes to him. Because that's what he has come to do, to take on the sin of sinners upon his own shoulders. But secondly, this resolve to not forsake the path of suffering, it establishes the very basis of the heavy demands of discipleship that we see in verses 57 to verse 62. In other words, it is essential that we hear the weighty calling of discipleship in those verses in light of the weightiness of Jesus' own course of life as conveyed in verse 51 down to verse 56. Now, what do I mean? Well, here in this latter portion from 57 to 62, we see Jesus issuing very strong words as to the nature of true discipleship, what it takes to follow Jesus, what it's going to cost you. And simply put, it's everything. You know, if you read this and you think it's a piece of cake and all it takes is just a bit of church attendance, you're not being honest with the text and you're not being honest with yourself. And most importantly, you're not being honest with God. Because Jesus clarifies to these prospective followers that the true Christian life is a life of hardship, suffering, sacrifice, giving up a lot of things. Because it is to die to yourself, to be willing to lose everything for the sake of following Christ wherever he goes. Because he demands the whole person, everything from us. But here's the thing. I think often we hear these things as just the requirements of discipleship spoken in a vacuum. That is to say that it's as if with no context... Out of left field, Jesus just calls us to a grueling life simply because he said so, with no rhyme or reason in particular. And God just wants us to suffer because, well, that's the super radical thing to do. And, you know, maybe through that we prove ourselves to be truly spiritual. And perhaps all of this gives us the impression that the cost of discipleship is in some way God requiring a costly payment from us. As if this hard-knock Christian life is our part in contributing to our salvation. It's our copay, as it were. And so maybe sometimes we wonder, why does it have to be that the Christian life involves such difficulty and suffering and sacrifice? Well, 
We're left wondering that question if all we read is verses 57 to 62 concerning the difficult life of the Christian. But we find the answer implied in verses 51 to 56, which tells us of the difficult life of Christ. You see, there's nothing that Jesus calls us to that he has not first gone to do himself. But whatever life he calls us to is actually the life that he himself first lived. As he set his face to endure through the most costly suffering and self-denial that awaited him in Jerusalem. We must always read the imperatives of the gospel in light of the indicatives of the gospel. What Jesus has done. Therefore, we must do. And hence, even back in verse 23 of chapter 9, Jesus said, Well, if anyone would come after him, uh, uh, come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. Whoever saves his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. But just before all of that, what did Jesus say? He said in verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. That is, that the Son of Man must first deny himself. Take up his cross, and he must not save his life, but lose it. And so he did, before any of his followers did. But it's not that Jesus went ahead to do it first, and so he now says to us, Okay, now it is your turn. Okay, you need to do your part and just follow my example. I did it first. If I can do it, you can do it too. That's not what's going on. Salvation is entirely of God on the basis of the finished work of Christ. It's not a copay. But the reason why the Christian follows Jesus even into a difficult life is because, by definition, the Christian is in union with Christ. That is the language of salvation in the New Testament. That to be saved is to be united to Jesus, joined with him in one flesh, as it were, in the heavenly marriage. There is no other way. There is no salvation in a life outside of Christ. This is why all throughout the New Testament, you don't see Paul, especially, referring to the Christian as Christians, but you see him referring to believers as those who are in Christ, and that we are no longer in ourselves, but that we are in another, that we are one with Him. And this union is so real and is so true that from the moment of one's new birth, the Christian's new life in Christ now begins to take on the hues and shades of Jesus' life. In other words, our life on earth starts looking a lot like Jesus' life on earth. Now, of course, not every Christian will be crucified on a cross, although some were in the first century, including Peter himself. But it means that the contours and the characteristics of our lives as his disciples will take on a striking similarity to the contours and characteristics of Jesus' life. Marked by suffering, affliction, not having your best life now, but having to persevere in faith, trusting in the future glory 
that awaits in eternity. Living not for the now, but for the later. And this is exactly the trajectory of the life of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? And so to follow Jesus is not just following his example. It's not just imitating his behavior. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. Because it's about following the very life of Jesus himself. The kind of life that he lived. And as we grow in Christ, we look more like him. So much so that even the story and the footprints of our lives might be reminiscent of his life, as if we were retracing his steps. And so Mark chapter 10, verse 32, illustrates this subtly, that in this very same account in a parallel passage, it says that as they, Jesus and his disciples, were on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. Meaning that the disciples were walking his steps after him. You know, maybe you look back at all the years ever since becoming a Christian, and it seems like life strangely got more difficult, more trying. Now, if you've only been walking with the Lord for just a couple of years, it's okay if you don't notice this as much yet. You may need more time to pass in order to notice the general curvature of your path in broad hindsight. But I suspect that for many of you who have walked with the Lord for a good number of years, you may notice that there have been more hardships introduced in your life ever since your conversion. And some of this may be externally induced. For example, you may have strained relationships since becoming a Christian with your family and friends because of your devotion to Christ and your new paradigm of life lived for Him. And even if that relationship is still intact, it may be that you find that the relationships have become more complicated and more volatile. And so life has become more complicated. Some of these hardships may be internally felt in that while you indeed have greater joy now in Christ than ever before and a real hope that is in eternity and an eternal satisfaction, at the same time, you actually might be struggling like never before with inward torment, deep discouragement, even spiritual depression at times. That's not uncommon. The great men of the faith in church history have written about their spiritual depression. Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Why? Because now in Christ you are living a life of battling against yourself, your own sinful flesh. In this respect, you begin to hate yourself. Not in terms of self-mutilation, but because you hate the sight of sin that you've noticed within. In Christ, your joy has deepened incomparably, but your experience of sorrow has deepened as well. And again, that's because your palate has awakened to taste not only the sweetness of Christ, but also the bitterness of your sin and the reality of life in a fallen world. Some of the hardships may be circumstantially experienced, where it appears that it has nothing to do with faith, but simply that all of a sudden, calamities and sufferings have been coming your way ever since your new birth. Whether it's failing health, disease, loss of a loved one, financial struggles, or some horrible life situation that has caused you tremendous pain and agony. 
And in all this, we might wonder, what is going on? In fact, countless believers throughout the centuries have asked the same. Life was peachy until I started following Jesus. And then all these things started happening. What in the world is happening? Well, it's because, as 1 Peter chapter 4 says, do not be surprised at fiery trials when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice because you are sharing Christ's sufferings. This is why. Because the Christian is united to Christ, one with Him. And so His experience of life starts to become your experience of life. Whatever it may be, all these hardships of life are indications that God has actually been guiding your life deep into the crucible of Christ. All these trials and tribulations are in fact the strongest evidence that you have been indeed united to Jesus by faith. That you are so conjoined with Him, the man of sorrows, that your life has become the taking on of the qualities and characteristics of His sorrowful life on earth. And if we don't have this basic understanding of our union with Christ, then the demands of discipleship in verses 57 to 62 will start to sound just onerous and legalistic as, we, as if we've been arbitrarily assigned a difficult life to live in following Jesus. But all this discussion about union with Christ explains it all because in Christ we're not our own anymore. And so to follow Him means to live a life that is now connected to His life with remarkable similarities of even griefs and sorrows. And none of this is to soften the blow of what Jesus is saying, starting from verse 57. He says some strong words that are meant to sound harsh because following Christ is all demanding. But understanding our union with him shows us the reasonableness of these demands. That they are not arbitrary, excessive requirements, but it is a logical necessity of the fact that we are in Christ. Well, not everyone had this understanding, but many had misconceptions in Jesus' day about what it means to follow him and to be his disciple, including these three prospective followers of Jesus, starting from verse 57. The first individual we see is a bold man who made some very impressive claims of commitment, and he approaches Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Anywhere you go, Jesus, I am there. But apparently Jesus knew that this man spoke better than he realized because Jesus replied, Hey, you know foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, Okay, that's great, but wherever I go, do you know where I am going? Are you sure you're willing to go wherever I'm going? Because I'm not exactly headed to the luxury villas of the Hilton Resort. In fact, I may not even have a place to sleep. You might be better off chasing after wild animals because at least they might lead you to their den or something. And so the misconception of this first man is that he assumes that the Christian life is just this easy, comfortable way of life. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying that in order to follow him, you must be homeless. 
and roam around in the streets. That's ludicrous. The, the, the Bible says that we are spiritual sojourners and exiles. In spirit, that is our attitude. Nor does it mean that a true disciple can, can never enjoy any comforts whatsoever. Well, if that were the case, then every Christian would have to shut off the electricity and refrain from the luxuries of clean running water and go back to making fires with sticks and stones. No, the principal point here that Jesus is making is this. If you want to follow me, you must be willing to give up any worldly ease and comfort that might get in the way. Because the essence of the demand is this. You must forfeit your sense of home in this world. Because a life of discipleship is to be a sojourner and pilgrim in this world. You don't belong here. And this is nothing new from what Jesus has already said throughout his Sermon on the Mount back in Luke chapter 6. That the Christian no longer belongs to this world, but belongs to God's kingdom. That in Christ, because we are in Christ, we are outside of this world, estranged from it. But let us be warned. If you haven't noticed, we live in a region, the East Bay, the Tri-Valley, where the big selling point is that this is your ultimate home. It has everything you want. The utopia of suburbia. Safe, clean neighborhoods. Good schools. Good weather. State-of-the-art technology. Medicine. You know, and as residents of the Bay Area, we, we are most in danger of making Earth our ultimate home. Again, Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to live here, nor is it a sin to enjoy with thankfulness the suburban lifestyle or, or the nice weather of sunny California. But do you realize that it is harder to be eternally minded here than perhaps anywhere else in the world? That in this respect, it is hardest to live as a true faithful Christian here than in the war zones in the Middle East. Because there is an infatuation, an enchantment, spellbinding of worldliness here. You realize how easy it is to fall in love with the world here, to our own peril and destruction? And the biggest danger is that often we don't realize this, and fleshly inertia sets in, and before we know it, we've become spiritually calloused. And this is why the church is so weak. Why it's become such a spiritually barren land? Because we buy into all the marketing and we allow all the marketing to train our thinking. Church, we must renew our minds by the Holy Scriptures, which tell us you are not your own, but you have been bought with the price. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. We need the mind of Christ to remember that our true home is in the eternal presence of God alone. 
And every single day that we spend here, we need to do double duty in purging idolatry from our hearts, reminding ourselves to live for God's eternal purposes and to be willing to give all of this up should God ever ask us of it by His providential will. Our minds must be anchored in the truth that the only satisfying, unwasted life is to endeavor to spend our lives, not preserve it, not hold on to it as long as we can, but to spend it making much of His glory, striving each day to live a life of eternal significance. But following this first man who wanted a nice cushy life of discipleship comes the second man who brought some contingencies to the table. Verse 59 says that while Jesus initiates the conversation to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wow, we, that is harsh, ain't it? I mean, is it so bad for a man to want to bury his father? Why would Jesus not allow this? Well, one possible explanation that people give is, well, maybe the father wasn't dead yet. The text simply says that the man first asked to bury his father before following Jesus, but it's possible that the father was still alive. And if that's the case, the issue here is that the man wanted to delay and postpone following Jesus, and so he was rebuking the man's procrastination. This is one possibility, which would then emphasize the urgency of following Christ. I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced. Not to doubt the motives of those who hold to this reasonable explanation, but I wonder if sometimes we're trying too hard to cushion the blow of Jesus' words. Because he does intend to give a pretty big blow. And Jesus was offensive. He was shocking. I mean, read through the Gospels. How many times did the Jews try to stone him point blank as an immediate reaction to the things that he said? You know, I am certain, I am certain that if Jesus were pastoring a church today, here, let's say in San Ramon, first of all, I would quit and join his church. No offense, I love being your pastor, but I mean, come on, it's Pastor Jesus. I'd rather go to him and, and I'd ask him, well, how, how do I become a member? What's your membership process like? But secondly, I'm convinced that if Jesus were pastoring a church today, his congregation would probably be very small. Many people would leave saying, whoa, how dare he say that? That's too strong. I wonder how many of us here would leave the church if Jesus were preaching on this pulpit. And Jesus said many things that broke the unspoken rules of culture and people's expectations. Jesus said a lot of things that were taboo. And so here Jesus responds to this man's seemingly reasonable and even commendable request to tend to his father whether or not he was deceased and says some shocking words, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now again, some here say, well, maybe Jesus means leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. Uh, because those who are not saved don't have access to the kingdom, and so they can go ahead and tend to the deceased body, but you have a more important job to do. That's possible, but I'm not really satisfied with explanations that involve a lot of squinting and bending to make it fit. I think 
that Jesus was simply employing a rhetoric of shock and hyperbole in order to turn the request on its head so as to say, no, not even that. There is no reasonable excuse, no matter how reasonable it sounds. For example, I think if somebody had said to Jesus, okay, I'll follow you, but can I first go feed my dog? Because my dog can't reach the pantry because that's where the dog food is. Jesus would have maybe said something like, well, let your dog feed itself from the pantry. Or somebody said, well, can I first go change my baby's diaper? He would say, let your baby change his own diaper. I'd pay to see that. I would pay to have that. (laughs) But the point is, whatever contingency the man would have raised, Jesus would have just turned it back on him. No matter how persuasive that contingency might sound. It's a rhetorical device. We have to understand here, Jesus is not prescribing a command for all Christians to follow that you can never bury your father. I mean, come on, Jesus himself upheld the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. In fact, he is the one who rebuked the Pharisees for using the Levitical law of Corbin in Matthew chapter 15 as a loophole to escape the responsibility to care for their parents. Okay, so if there's anyone who affirms caring for your parents, it's Jesus. But here, he wasn't speaking literally so much as rhetorically, such that if any of us were to object and say, wait, Jesus, even this fell in the blank, as we think of the, the most impossible thing that Jesus would say no to, he'd immediately respond, yes, even that. Wait, even a good thing? As taking care of my family, my own father? Yes, even that. I come before even your father, your mother, your child, your spouse, your friend, anyone. Stop making excuses. You can think of all the excuses you want. And I'll know all of them. His main point here is this. If you want to follow me, you cannot have any other person's interests, passions before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And anything that is put before God becomes a God, a lowercase g God, an idol in our hearts, even if it's a good thing. Christian, do you understand this? That your devotion to Jesus is above even the closest family ties and friendship on earth, even above your spouse. As much as I love my wife, it's our anniversary tomorrow. And she is set apart from everyone else on earth. Even she comes second. Why? Because earthly marriage, as strong as that bond is, it is only a shadow of the real thing. The substance of heavenly marriage. Namely, our union with Christ. Human marriage is derivative and we must never flip the order. You know, the most basic principle of a healthy biblical marriage is this. If you love Christ more than each other, then you will gain both Christ and each other. And you will enjoy a blissful marriage for a lifetime. But if you elevate each other above Christ, then you will lose both Christ and each other. And you will struggle in marriage. And the same principle can be subsequently derived and applied to our relationships with our children. If you elevate them above Christ, you'll lose both. Our friends, anything, anyone. 
To follow Christ is to have Him as a supreme object of our allegiance and affections. To seek to please Him above everyone else. To live to do His will and carry out His kingdom purpose. Hence, Jesus tells us, man, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This is true discipleship. Following Jesus means devoting ourselves to Him supremely. And whatever shocking thing Jesus said was indeed intended to induce shock in us so as to jolt us awake to the total comprehensive extent of His Lordship over our lives. And a similar issue concerns the third individual, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, just as with the second man, we see this person also bringing the contingencies of his terms and conditions to the table. But just as we did before, we might say, well... What's the big deal? He just wants to say goodbye. He doesn't want to say hello. He wants to say goodbye. What's wrong with that? It sounds like a good thing. He sounds committed. Well, again, we have to first remember that Jesus, when he says these things, he's not issuing a universal decree forbidding any interaction with those at home. I mean, that's just ridiculous given the context of the teaching of the rest of the New Testament, pursuing godly marriage, raising children in the Lord, providing for your family members, being a functional and godly member of society. But here, Jesus is simply addressing this unique individual with a certain rhetorical thrust that brings to the surface the secret issues of this man's heart. For instance... You remember the rich young ruler that Jesus came across? And he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded by saying, well, here's the Ten Commandments. He listed some of them, and he only answered that way, not because he was saying you need to work your way to salvation, because, but because the man asked, how can I work my way to salvation? And Jesus said, well, okay, well, here it is. If you're interested, good luck. And then the young man had the audacity to say, well, I've kept them all, which he didn't, which Jesus would show in just a moment. But then Jesus said, okay, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all your possessions. Give it all to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now there, Jesus was not prescribing a universal mandate of needing to sell all your possessions in order to qualify for discipleship. That would be a works-based righteousness. But he said this to speak specifically to that rich young ruler's heart to expose the covetousness of his heart and the true idolatry of his heart and that he thought he obeyed all the Ten Commandments, but in fact he hadn't. And we see that sadly, the rich young ruler walked away because he couldn't let go. Well, in the same vein, to this third man, Jesus says what he says to touch a particular nerve of this man's soul pressing on a specific pressure point. Because evidently for this man, saying farewell to those at home was not an act of decisive departure to follow Jesus, but was rather his attempt to delay his devotion and commitment because his heart was not fully there for Jesus, but his heart was still back at home. 
And we know this because of how Jesus responds to the man, that he has his hand to the plow on the field, but he's constantly turned back, looking behind him. In other words, the issue with this third gentleman is that although he claims to want to follow Jesus, his heart is divided. And Jesus is saying, you cannot follow me with a divided heart. It doesn't mean that if you've ever struggled with fleshly desires, you're disqualified. If so, then we're all not fit for God's kingdom. But Jesus is saying, you must leave your old life behind. You cannot have both. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and family if it comes to a crossroads. You cannot please God and the world. You cannot have your best life now and follow Jesus. Because as we've established, following Jesus means to follow his very life of temporary suffering and sacrifice for the now in this life on earth. And then to enjoy permanent unfading glory later in eternity. If you want your best life now, if you want the life according to your old nature of fleshly desires and ambition, you must understand that it is utterly incompatible with following Christ. You can try to do both, but at best, all you will achieve is successfully fooling everybody else that you are a Christian when you're not. And you will be in for a rude awakening when you stand before God and you realize that you never once fooled Christ. You cannot put your hand to the plow while looking back and try to draw a straight line. You'll end up walking a crooked path and ruin the field. My friend, if this is you, and may the Holy Spirit convict you if that's the case, give it up now while you can. You cannot live this dual life. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Jesus. Remember, you cannot be married to two spouses. You are united to one, for the two shall become one flesh. And so it is with Christ. Church, this is the nature of true discipleship. He demands our everything. But as we've discussed already, this demand is most reasonable and actually so gracious because yes we must give up our sense of home and belonging and attachment to this world and yet that's all for the sake of sojourning our way as pilgrims to our everlasting home of heaven with christ which will never be taken away from us yes we must put christ above all earthly affections and allegiances but we know that only he is the never-failing friend and heavenly spouse who will never leave nor forsake us. And actually to love Him supremely above everybody else will enable us to love our spouse, our friends, our family the best only when the order is right. And yes, to follow Him is to leave behind our old self entirely. But we know that Jesus will never Lead astray those who follow him, but he is the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And knowing this, 
is what empowers us to follow Him until the end. When we remember that living for Christ is so much better than living for ourselves or for anything in this world. And we know the destination that it is all leading us to. In fact, let us learn from Jesus himself. Back in verse 51, it says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Literally, it says that he stiffened or he solidified his face like a hard rock. It became a rock-solid determination. And this is not only a vivid metaphor to illustrate his resolve, but this language comes from Isaiah chapter 50 as it prophesies of him, the suffering servant of the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, you can turn there if you want, the servant himself speaks personally and prophetically. This is essentially the pre-incarnate Christ speaking. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Remind you of anyone? Remind you of anything? How Jesus was struck, mocked, spit on, and publicly humiliated. But in the next verse, in verse 7 of Isaiah 50, he says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint. Or in other words, I have set my face like a solid rock, just as we see in Luke chapter 9. Now, how could he have this resolve? To endure through such shame and suffering and tribulation. What empowered him to set his face through that course? Well, the verse continues in Isaiah 50. I've set my face like a flint, like a solid rock. And I know, I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. In other words, even the Lord Jesus found the strength to persevere in faith through the looming crucible of Jerusalem and all in it because he was confident that the Father would vindicate him and that the cruelty of shameful death and suffering would not be the end of the story, but that it would all end in his triumphant resurrection his heavenly ascension, and his glorious exaltation, even as we're worshiping his exalted name today. Jesus looked ahead to the future glory beyond the temporary cross. Hence, notice the language back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be, what? Not crucified, it says, but to be taken up. To be ascended. Immediate suffering was not the ultimate focus, but future glory was his focus. This is what our Lord fixed his gaze on to persevere in faith, entrusting himself to the Father's will, as difficult as that was, but knowing that in the end, all things were working out for good. And his crown of glory was awaiting him. And so it must be with us. 
The only way you'll weather through the storms and tempests of this life is by clinging to the mast of God's promise of future glory. That suffering and struggles in this life will not be the end, but it is only a temporary and passing moment. And let the life of our Lord give you assurance that suffering is not the end, but exalted eternal glory is what awaits just on the other side. And so as we've been united to Him by faith, our lives will surely follow the full course of His life, even through that glorious finish line to which He will take us. And so church, remember that although the call to follow Jesus demands everything of us, it will be more than worth it in the end. You will share not only in the sufferings of Christ, but you will soon be sharing in the glories of Christ. And so by the grace of God, keep persevering, keep following Him, no matter what the cost, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you can take that to the bank because that is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You that in Your grace and mercy to sinners like us, You have called us to die to ourselves and to live anew in Christ, following Him forever. We ask that Your grace would empower us and strengthen us unto the, the end that you would encourage us by a sight of our Lord and His life and the full course of it. And we thank you that you give to us even the sacrament of the bread and the cup through which this ordinary element you use for the extraordinary purpose of reminding us of the visible sign and seals of the gospel that as we take the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He returns and He surely will to come for His own, His own people. So Lord, prepare our hearts to receive it by faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.